Mr. Gambler, you're going to have to stop cursing. So that would be great if you would stop doing that. I will that. do my best. Okay. <laughs> so um, this is episode two of uh, the Government Cheese with the BBG, and we're doing it a little differently. I'm a little apprehensive about this because I'm a control freak. But I'm gonna, I'm yeah, gonna, we know. I'm going to give the reins over to Mr. Blue, uh, and he's going to run us through uh, these. And we're going to do it relatively quickly because we're all hungry. So, Very true. Uh, the reality is, folks, uh, the, the ratings and the reviews showed that we needed a new host. So that's why uh, <laughs> I'm hosting, yeah. and Mr. Brzezinski is now just uh, yeah. a peon. That's this right. whole process. Yeah, I've always been, just ask my wife. And then after the review of this episode, I'm sure Mr. Gambler will be uh, in charge because my <laughs> reviews will be worse than Mr. Brzezinski's. <laughs> All right, so the review we're doing is topic four, uh, the legislative branch, uh, which is Congress. Um, testing will take place sometime before or after Christmas break, depending on how everything falls with state testing and all the other unforeseen uh, things that could happen. It could be at home, it could be at school. Yep. Like doing this. A, lot of, a lot of things that have to be decided, but what doesn't need decided is doing a podcast because we're doing one and it's good for the kids who listen to it. Mm -hmm. All right, so first question uh, we'll talk about, and I'll throw it over to Mr. Brzezinski. Um, why is the lawmaking function of Congress important to democracy? I believe what we were looking for here is it is the way in which the public will becomes public policy. So it's important in a democracy, not so important in a dictatorship. You know, the public will doesn't really matter so much, but it's very much important that the lawmaking function in a democracy mirrors what the, the people want. Okay. Is that good enough? Yeah, okay. good for me. Right. Mr. Gambler, anything to add to that one? No, that sounds good. Okay. All right, moving on uh, to the second one. Uh, qualifications and terms of Congress, and as uh, all of you hopefully will remember from class, there are there, there's differences between um, the Senate and the House when it comes to uh, these sort of things. Um, Mr. Gambler, do you want to talk about the uh, differences? Sure. Well, qualifications to be a senator, you have to be 30 years old at least 30 years old. You have to been a citizen of the United States for nine years and live in the state from which you are elected. Um, also with Senate, you represent the entire state. So everyone in the state would vote on you. And then your term would be six years. Qualifications for the House of Representatives, a little bit different, 25 years old or, or older seven years a U.S. citizen, and also live in the state. You would get a two-year term when elected, and you are only elected from your district uh, based off of the census population. Okay, very good. Mr. Brzezinski, anything? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think we might get, I'll get to it in uh, one of the short answer questions okay. here, so. All right. Um, something I'll add to that real quick, um, maybe I'm overstepping, but I'm going to overstep because I don't know if it's later on. Um, the idea of should you live in the district that you represent, there is no requirement to do that per the Constitution. 
I've talked about it with my class, is it a good idea? And they all nod their head, yes, it is. I mean, why would you vote for someone that doesn't want to live in the same district uh, that you're currently living in? Um, although, uh, if, if our current map comes to pass, uh, we could have a Republican uh, representative on the November ballot for District 9, not from District 9, because she currently lives in Bowling Green. So that could be interesting. We'll see if everyone holds to that idea or not. Uh, third one, um, I haven't answered one yet, I guess I'll answer that. Um, question here is who do senators represent, who do house members represent? Um, once again, I, I think it's a common misconception and maybe even with a lot of adults out there that senators represent just parts of the state and that is not true. Senators represent the entire state, both of them. Um, we have two senators in Ohio, uh, Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman. Uh, both of them are every bit as much as your senator as the other one is. Um, on the other hand, who do House members represent? They only represent a part of the state or a district, especially in Ohio. Um, 16 districts currently. We're going to go down to 15 here before long. Um, our current representative for our part of the state, Northwest Ohio, is Bob Latta uh, from District 5. Um, so the senators represent all 12 million people in Ohio, give or take. Um, Bob Latta, District 5, only re represents Northwest Ohio, um, about 800,000 people or so. Anything else on that? You did a great job. Thank you. I try to impress you all the time. Um, all right, number four, I think we're off to Mr. Brzezinski again. Uh, question here is, uh, what was the 17th Amendment? Um, and then who used to, to do this before the 17th Amendment was passed? Uh, popular election of senators, so uh, and when the Constitution was originally written, this is not a thing that is in the hands of the people, um, but the 17th Amendment changes that. Originally, it was state legislatures, so you go through a um, you go through a middleman. You vote for you vote for the people at the state level, and then those are the people that used to pick the senators. And the reason we 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 switched is this is part of the progressive era where they're looking to fix things in that, that maybe were uh, not quite right with government and the problem was a lot of those Senate seats were bought. Uh, There's a lot of bribery involved in bribing state legislatures uh, to, to award those seats to the highest bidder and so there was a fair amount of corruption and that's why we had it. And then the follow-up question here is what constitutional principle did this amendment make stronger um, I said popular sovereignty, um, but uh, as we've talked about in class, you can kind of look at it two different ways. Uh, you, you can see that as giving people power, obviously, um, but it's also uh, limiting government by, by taking that power away from uh, the state legislature. Okay, very good. Mr. Gambler, anything to add to that? No, I think he summed it all up. Okay. All right, on to the next one. Um, next one, referencing the House of Representatives. Um, why does Alaska and other states have only one representative? Um, this goes to Mr. Gambler. Well, representation is based off of state population, so those states are not as populated, but then they also need to at least get one. So that's why they have one, even though they probably don't have enough population to even warrant that. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, some of the states uh, have almost 500,000 people, uh, which really throws Wyoming? a wrench into the whole. Yeah, Wyoming, Wyoming does. Yep. Uh, throws a wrench into the whole one person, one vote type thing where. And you're uh, arguably, arguably, those people are more powerful. You can make the argument they're more powerful because there's less of them equaling the same amount of power in the Senate. Yep. But each state at least gets one, so it is what it is. Number six, uh, describe the importance of the oversight function of Congress, and hopefully you two will add some detail to this also. I don't know if I do a great job in class talking about this, but uh, one of the things that I talk about is the idea that Congress controls the, the purse strings. They control the budget. So. And a lot of that budget goes to the executive branch to enforce all of the rules, regulation, and laws that the federal government has. So the oversight function, they try to follow the money to make sure that the money is being used for what it's supposed to be used for. And it's not being used to pad the pockets of, of people that it shouldn't be or uh, going towards wasteful spending or anything like that um, is the main thing. So what do you guys think about that? Thing there, I have I have one thing. Uh, just I think you actually do a better job because I I I failed at least this year to to talk about it as far as like appropriating money and following the money. That's that's that should have been something that I said, uh, but that I kind of focused more on um, like investigations, I guess. Of you know certain if there's a a, a story that deals with corruption, uh, maybe they bring in the head of the FBI. To, uh, for instance, like Fast and Furious was this, you know, this botched effort in the Obama administration to get uh, uh, to figure out where guns were coming in from Mexico, and they called people in. Once this came to light, they called people in and asked a bunch of questions. I think impeachment probably could, you know, it's obvious it's all own separate thing, but I think it could fall under oversight because they're making sure that if something's going on in the executive branch where somebody could possibly be charged and removed from office. I think that that absolutely would fall under mm -hmm. oversight function. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the oversight function can, it's more than just following money because when you talk about investigations in general, uh, Congress can essentially investigate anything. Uh, you know, because I even referenced some goofy things in class like they've had investigations on steroids and baseball. Okay, is that really something Congress needs to investigate? Well, they felt it was. So they, Let them juice. Yeah, they, yeah. Get more more home runs. More home runs out of it. Is Bigfoot real? Do UFOs exist? They've had investigations <laughs> on all of these things. I'm not sure how pertinent they are to life as we know it. Yeah. Although, I guess if the UFO attacked, that would be pretty important to life as we know it. But anyway. <laughs> should, should we have parental warnings on music right yes. that was one of Al, theirs Al Gore that was huge and I think I too um, didn't mention the money part as much as I should have and I mentioned that it's just a it's a watchdog Congress is a watchdog over the executive branch right. yep yep all all excellent points we are at 11 minutes and 30 seconds right now so just uh, yeah, I want to point that out, out. We, we, might, right. we might lose them one one word answers from now on folks here we go <laughs> Mr. Brzezinski gets to try that out first. Yeah. Um, so the next one, definition and examples of powers of Congress. Several, several powers they have. Uh, expressed, written, is my one word answer for that. Uh, in the Constitution, uh, one example would be uh, the power to coin money. 
Um, the implied power are reasonably suggested, um, and they're not in the Constitution per se as express powers are written, but the power to make a bank is the one we talk about maybe the most, and as long as they can connect that to one of their what we call foregoing powers, the word that's used in the Necessary and Proper Clause, as long as they can connect what they want to do with something that they can do and it will help them carry out what they can do, uh, then it's implied uh, such as making a bank. They, they tie it to, for example, coining money or borrowing money, that kind of thing. Inherent powers, because uh, nations simply exist, they've always had these things. The word inherent kind of sounds like inherit. So if you think that the uh, nations have kind of inherited those things from uh, previous nations, uh, since nations have existed, naturalization uh, is simply becoming uh, a citizen. Um, and I don't, I don't know if necessarily, Mr. Blue, you want me. To, what do you mean uh, by an example there? For for, for naturalization. naturalization, I mean, uh, well, the, I guess yeah. I missed inherent power uh, regulating immigration mm -hmm. would be, one. and I think that's what that was designed to do. Is okay. naturalization is Make one of the inherent powers okay. that that they have. Very good. And then the last thing uh, on this, we have eminent domain. Uh, I probably spent more time on this this year than I have in the past. Private property for public use. Um, we've talked about a number of court cases. Uh, we've talked about kilo probably more so than anything else, um, but uh, uh, gosh, I can't remember the other two cases, that, the one in Hawaii talking about seizing land because too many people, or too few people owned land, for example. But yeah, that's it. All right, very good. Um, moving on, uh, next one, uh, referencing a very important Supreme Court case, uh, Mr. Gambler, what was the importance of uh, McCulloch versus Maryland? Well, the Supreme Court's going to chime in in talking about the Supremacy Clause. Um, Congress may use necessary and proper uh, clause to um, make more powers. Um, so McCulloch versus Maryland deals with the bank, second bank of um, the United States, which would be an implied power. Um, linked to the express power of coining money, taxing, uh, things that involve money and banks. Okay, very good. So, yep, that definitely uh, important. One of those cases um, that's out there, kind of like Marbury versus Madison. It's like uh, most non-government teachers don't know the specifics, but you know, Marbury versus Madison established judicial review. Got McCulloch versus Maryland here, like Mr. Gambler said, kind of established the use of implied powers, and, and, and that Congress does have them, and they can use them for a lot of different things. Um, it'll be a never-ending kind of argument over how far these implied powers go, um, just kind of a case-by-case -case basis. But this did set the groundwork for um, implied powers to be used. All right, uh, number nine, impeachment process. Um, <laughs> Can't get away Classic. from that bell. Exactly, yeah. Um, especially as it relates to the president, okay? Um, I was supposed to set you up here, Mr. Brzezinski, even though this is my uh, oh, question. Well, so uh, well, uh, no. you want me to go through these first before I, I, I set you up? Uh, well, no, I, mean, uh, I guess I don't have any... Uh, uh, well, I could read... Okay, so the, the question is... Uh, discuss the impeachment process, especially as it relates to the president. Hmm. 
Well, and that was Andrew Johnson, by the way, in case anyone didn't know. We don't know what Andrew Johnson sounded like, but we can only... We're pretty we sure only, that's what he sounded like. We can like. only guess based on pictures. Right. So Yes, okay, that's all I got. Okay, so uh, moving into the... Uh, nuts and bolts of the question. Um, now that the comic relief is over and you're all wondering whose voices those were, that was uh, former President Bill Clinton, who was impeached, and former President Andrew Johnson, who was also impeached. My, my Trump is, is way out of practice. Okay. It's not, it's not we'll working. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, questions here. Who impeaches? Um, the House of Representatives impeaches. Okay. What does impeach mean? Because this is important. So many people in our country think impeach means to kick them out of office immediately. That is not true. It just means you're bringing charges against them. You're bringing accusations against them. It's the equivalent of being charged with a crime um, if you're talking about the criminal court system. Uh, you're not going to jail yet, which I guess you could be if it was bad enough. Anyway, you're just being charged at that point, okay? Uh, there is no conviction. Um, you have to have a trial first. So, so if a president gets impeached, he still stays in office, okay? The trial then happens in the Senate. The Senate is where the trial happens. Normally the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over the trial if it's an impeachment trial of a president. Um, and then basically it's kind of like a trial, a criminal trial, although not really. You just have to would have to see one to appreciate you know, the similarities and the differences between it. But basically, in the end, the 100 senators all get to decide whether the president should be removed or whether he gets to stay in office. Um, and there are lots of senators that need to vote remove for removal, two-thirds, correct? Mm -hmm. I don't have it down here on my paper. So two-thirds of the senators have to vote for removal. Um, have we ever had a president removed from office? No. No, we have not, okay? Um, presidential impeachment history, uh, we've referenced two of the gentlemen already. Uh, President Andrew Johnson, uh, who was Lincoln's replacement, was impeached but not removed. Missed it by one vote. Yeah, pretty short. Uh, does each vote count? Yes. Um, Bill Clinton um, also was impeached um, but then not removed. Yes, because he did not have sexual relations with that woman but he did, right. and then he lied about it under oath yeah. in a grand jury testimony. Yeah. So. so, yeah, lying was not good. But he still stayed in office, even though he was impeached, he was not removed. And on to uh, the most recent one, uh, former President Donald Trump was impeached not once, but twice in one term. Yes. So he yes. sets the record, holds the record. Um, neither time was he removed from office um, with the... Uh, trial in the Senate. Ironically enough, the second time, by the time the trial happened, he was no longer president, right? So that, that adds into the question, was it even necessary? So anyway, to keep all the politics out of it, we'll... Um, well, one thing I wanted to add about that, I talked about it briefly in class, and actually I, 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 it was a teaser. I said, you'll have to listen to the podcast to, oh boy. to hear the answer oh boy, to this. Yeah. Right? I'm sure they'll all remember that. Yes. Uh, and they'll all listen to the podcast. Absolutely. Who, who presides is the question. And, or, and we said, well, Mr. Blue just said that it is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, but on um, Mr. Trump's uh, second impeachment, it was actually the president pro tem of the Senate, which kind of gets us to our next question here. Um, it was Patrick Leahy, a uh, Democrat from Vermont. And the reason was, at least the reason given by the court, was the fact that 
By the time the trial happened, President Trump had, was no longer president, and so the Constitution says he presides it, you know, if the president is on trial, well, technically, I guess, you know, he was charged when he was president, but uh, not tried when he was president. So uh, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, did not preside over that last impeachment trial. Which, you know, I can buy on to. I can agree with. I, mean, I, not, I, I think, think he just didn't want to do it. And I can't blame him. No, I can't either. So. All right. Uh, next one, as Mr. Brzezinski mentioned, uh, congressional leadership. Behind that, I have how a bill becomes a law. I'm not sure why. Um, so we'll just work on congressional leadership because how a bill becomes a law, there's actually a discussion about that later, hopefully short later because I know we're going way longer we're on time. Tw 20 so, minutes, 20, so, almost 21 minutes. Mr. Brzezinski, go ahead. Uh, Speaker of the House, presiding officer uh, of the House, uh, that person currently is uh, Nancy Pelosi of California. Uh, president of the Senate, this person is also the Vice President of the United States, so they act as the presiding officer. Again, what that means for, for, for both of them is that they, you know, either the Speaker or the President of the Senate, they kind of run the show, they recognize people to speak during debate, uh, but the one big thing that you really want to remember is the Speaker of the House is a member of the House. They can vote on everything. They are essentially just like any other member of the House, but much more powerful. Um, whereas the President of the Senate uh, only can vote in case of a tie. Other than that, uh, they're kind of, they're kind of, you know, they feel useless. Uh, John Adams had a famous quote about, you know, that, and and basically don't do a whole lot. Um, President pro tempore. Uh, fills in for the vice president when uh, the VP is gone, and that is not, that's fairly often. I mean, the vice president does certain things for the president in, other, in his role as vice president. Um, so uh, you will you will see that, and I should say uh, her role as vice president because we do have our, our first female uh, vice president. Um, standing committee, uh, permanent committees that deal with permanent issues. These things are not going away. You know, for instance, uh, we have standing committees such as the Armed Forces Committee in each one of the houses. Uh, obviously, we're always going to have a military, so we're always going to have issues that, that we need to deal with. And then the last term here uh, is bill, and that is simply a, a proposed, or I like to say rough draft law. Okay, very good. Um, Moving on to the next question, because uh, the standing committees kind of lead into that one quite well. Um, Mr. Gambler, why does Congress, or why did, why do they still uh, have and make committees and subcommittees? Well, committees, subcommittees, they tackle specific jobs or tasks. Um, when they're doing more research and they try to divide those, um, put people on the committee or subcommittee that have expertise in those areas yeah, they, the, the, so like um, I think isn't Rand Paul Rand Paul's a, doc, a physician I thought Kentucky, from, uh, Senator from Kentucky Rand Paul I think, might be optometrist maybe okay. but some sort of doctor yeah I'm not yes, sure I, I if, believe you're correct so what, what, make, what Mr. Gambler said is, you know you want to put people in the right place where they can be the most helpful so if you have a, a member of Congress that happens to be a physician Maybe they're on Health and Human Services or something related to that, or like uh, John McCain for a long time was always uh, the Armed Forces uh, Chairman, and he was a, a military veteran, kind of a well-known um, prisoner of war. Uh, you know, I, I just the only thing I would like to add for for that is uh, to divide up the workload. 
Um, the, there's 435 members of Congress, and that's a lot of people, but they're, they're dealing with a, a country of over 330 million people, and we have a lot of problems, so there's a lot of work to be done. Yep. So definitely that. Um, and with that being said, uh, the, another question can be, uh, how do these bills get decided on what's going to be discussed, maybe in front of uh, the whole House of Representatives especially? Um, so the question here is, what committee has the power to decide what bills reach the floor for consideration? Uh, the hint here is that it is in the House of Representatives, and it's, and it's called the House Rules Committee. Sounds weird, like they make rules, but the rules they make are which bills get heard on the floor. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert here, uh, the only way that a bill can become a law is if it's heard on the floor. So it's a super important step for a bill um, if it's going to become a law. So that committee and the people who serve on that committee are, are very powerful in the House. So it's, it, it's a committee that most all the House members want to serve on, only obviously a select few, 20 or so, uh, serve on it. I get to decide uh, when those bills reach the floor. All right, uh, Mr. Brzezinski, um, compare debating bills in the House versus debating bills in the Senate. In the House, uh, they have two-year terms, and uh, they, they want to get things done quickly. There's an, and then plus, there's a lot of them. So debate is severely limited in the House. Uh, members only have about one hour to speak on particular topics, whereas in the Senate, um, there's very, very few limits. Um, we, we've talked about how uh, the, the difference in terms allows them to do that. Uh, they, they can digest legislation. And so um, senators can talk as long as they want. In fact, if they want to prevent a bill from reaching uh, a vote, they may filibuster, which means they simply speak as long as they can um, and I think we've, we'll mention a few of these uh, this week. We're, we're recording this before I'm actually talking about this in class. So, um, you know, Strom Thurmond, for the, I think, still holds the record uh, for 24 plus hours. You know, he's like you know, peeing in a, in a plant <laughs> off the side of the. Uh, is, is that what really happened? I don't know. I because think, I, I think I've always wondered that. that. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like maybe it was in a movie or maybe Strom Thurmond actually, actually did, did it. That. So I should, I should probably fact check on that before I say <laughs> Strom Thurmond did that. But yeah, why not? It is just makeup stuff. Uh, and uh, if if uh, three fifths, three fifths cloture, I think it's three fifths. I so. uh, if three fifths of the Senate, uh, which would be sixty members, uh, vote to end debate, this is called cloture. And this is basically they they are. They're going to limit debate for you know a period of time, so it kind of is the answer to the filibuster, which really kind of covers uh, one of the short answer questions I have. Okay. All right. Very good, Mr. Gambler. Anything else? Yeah. I don't. Okay. I could see. I well. I was going to say I could see Strom Thurmond from some of the other things that he's <laughs> done through the years. Peeing in a plant. Peeing in a plant. Oh well, the the fact that he was filibustering. Civil rights legislation. Civil rights legislation, <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. All right. Moving on, but still staying with talking about uh, debating bills and how a bill becomes a law. Um, Mr. Gambler, um, where do most bills die in the process? Most of them die in committee as the small groups um, taking on those specific job, that task, uh, as they're looking at it. 
they find that it's linked to other laws or that it just isn't pertinent to the whole nation or um, to the largest group. So they, they kind of die off right there. Yep, very good. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the committee's job. Um, maybe 5% of the bills become a law. Um, I tell my class normally 85 to 90%, probably more than that, die in committee. Um, never, never make it out. Um, next question uh, deals with the president, um, but it involves him talking to the Senate. It says, why does the president do a State of the Union speech? Um, well, first of all, the question, it, it's a constitutional command uh, that he is to do this. Does anyone know the article or number? For, for the State of the Union? Correct. I'm going to guess it's in Article 2. Probably is. So. Uh, it's in Article 2. I know what it says. It says, from time to time, uh, the president will advise Congress on the State of the Union. Okay? So now it's become yearly, uh, usually in February-ish, uh, sometime around there. Um, nowadays, the president will do a joint session of Congress, so the House and the Senate will both be there, along with a lot of other dignitaries and, and people that they want to invite. Supreme Court justices. Supreme Court justices are there. Usually the, the military brass is there. Um, the president will do this on national TV. It's a great opportunity for him to talk to the American people for over an hour usually with nobody interrupting him. So uh, every president takes that opportunity to, to do so. Um, and what I tell my class a lot of times is it's kind of a laundry list or a Christmas list of things the president wants Congress to get done in the upcoming year. But it's also uh, a, a discussion of all the wonderful things uh, Congress and the president has accomplished in the previous year, mainly president because he's the one talking. Uh, so, but in it, the historical nature of the State of the Union speech is kind of unique because back before TV and radio, um, a lot of presidents would just handwrite the State of the Union speech, have one of their aides run it over to Congress and read it to them, and the president would never show up. So um, it's become more important since television and radio has become a big deal. Especially with the egos of presidents, they, they definitely want them to be there. Yeah. Kind of wish that they would do it like Washington. Right, just write a letter. Here, read Here. this. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, made for TV though, according to the president. So anyway, uh, almost done. Uh, I'm not sure how we're going to tackle this one, but it's I, Mr. Brzezinski's job on no, tackling this. That's, uh, that's just the, look, make, make that's it quick. That's the only one I have blank. Make it quick. Uh, <laughs> okay, so so the one we're talking about here is the steps on how a bill becomes a law. Um, we're not going to go over each of them individually. No. We don't have time to do that. No. But what I will say is I think all three of us have on our test some sort of matching section to yeah. put them in order. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. yes. So um, on my matching section, I have 11 steps. I have them broke up into two categories, I think a group of five and a group of six. Yep. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Uh, but break them up into those two groups and try to get good at those two groups um, at getting them in order. Because it is important to understand well, I, how I think that process if, works. If you, think, if you think logically about this, I, I really don't think, you know, it, yes, it's hard because there's 12 or, I'm sorry, 11 things and that you kind of have to remember. But um, I, I think it makes logical sense. The only thing that I would maybe focus on a little bit is kind of the last few steps realize that the process could end at step eight right mm -hmm. if right. we sign right. signs a law there's no issue with you know any vetoing or any overriding of vetoing or anything like that 
so, or you know, conference committee. You know, if they and I doubt it happens very often, but if they pass two bills in the same form, there's no need for a conference right. committee. So, right. yeah, that is that is a good point. The eleven steps that we cover uh, cover all scenarios. So, like the last three steps cover that whole uh, needing a conference committee. Um, it even references what if the president, you know, vetoes the bill and then Congress maybe has the opportunity to override that veto at the last second. So there's just, just a lot of lot of what ifs uh, when a bill becomes a law. And we, we've tried to make it as simple as possible, but yet include as much information as possible. So um, you know, more to come on that. I haven't even begun to talk about that in my class yet. Um, all right. Into the miscellaneous, got miscellaneous and short answer left, and we'll be done. I am not going to talk about my miscellaneous because we, we, we've talked about necessary and proper clause enough, but I will open up the floor to Mr. Brzezinski and Mr. Gambler to include any miscellaneous here they need. I just, I just have two, two things. How do you drag a bill out of committee? So a, commi a, a bill that is, one of the questions we had earlier, you know, Mr. Gambler said, yeah, they're stuck in committee. committee. That, uh, word would be pigeonholed. They're stuck there. They're pigeonholed. If there's a pigeonholed bill, uh, the answer of getting it out of committee is filing a discharge petition. Um, and then the other question uh, that I had miscellaneous-wise was a, a rider. Know what a rider is. So you have a bigger piece of legislation like the farm bill, for instance, that they have to pass every year. Um, you may have um, you may have members of the House try to attach little projects that are only specific to their particular uh, district, and it's going to help them go back to the voters and say, hey, look what I did for you. Unicorn, oh. no, no, really? Come on, Cheryl. Is that Cheryl? Maybe I'm it wasn't Cheryl. Sure it was. I just assumed it was Cheryl. Yeah, yeah strike, a... strike that screen. We're yeah. not sure that was her. We'll edit that. Anyways, a rider, you attach this to a bigger bill because it probably would not get passed on its own. That's as far as miscellaneous. That's all I have. Okay. Mr. Gambler, anything? I I didn't have anything here. Okay. Moving on to the short answers. Um, I'll cover mine first. I have a couple I, I do want to go over. Uh, then we'll open the floor up to Mr. Brzezinski and Mr. Gambler. Uh, my first one says, what happens to the kind of makeup of the House of Representatives and the Senate if Puerto Rico becomes our 51st state? Um, so the Senate's easy, so we'll cover the Senate first. Uh, the Senate's covered by the Constitution. Uh, two, two senators per state. All states have to have equal representation. So Puerto Rico is going to get two senators. Uh, the Senate will add two seats and have 102 uh, senators. Okay? The House is trickier, um, and I don't have time to go into much detail as I would like to right now, but basically if they keep the same uh, Reapportionment Act of 1929 intact and don't change it or modify it, we have to stick with 435 House members. Puerto Rico, by law, will get at least one House member, so one state would have to give up a House seat to give to Puerto Rico. Um, I won't even go into the population of Puerto Rico because that would dictate them getting probably three or four seats, actually, if you yeah. look at the population. I, they yeah, have I like three to four million people. So I, uh, I looked that up once. I'm so, learning something. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm glad I could learn you today. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, but with the House side, students, I, I, I just need you to know if it stays at 435, uh, state would have to give up a seat. Puerto Rico would get at least one seat, and then that's how that process would work. Okay. Last one I want to cover is just, uh, I, I have a one short answer that is two words. Congress is dot, dot, dot. And this goes back to the very beginning. The very first thing I told you I want you to know about Congress is what's its job when it comes to the three branches. It is the lawmaking branch 
of the federal government. So if you put that down, even though that's barely five words, you're going to get five points for that answer on that short answer. All right, Mr. Gambler, go ahead. Uh, the one that I'll touch base on, or one of the two, Kilo versus New London case. Um, with strengthening government power, talks about eminent domain, so taking private property for public use. Um, what is meant by public use or public benefit? How do they have to tie that in? And then explaining the court's decision, uh, liberal or strict interpretation of the Kelo case. And um, liberal um, being that it stretched the idea of public benefit, um, knowing full well that it wasn't going to be the property wasn't going to be given um, to make a road, put a court building in, or a school, something like that. The second one, short answer, was about Article One, um, Article One, and Clause 18 of uh, U.S. Constitution, dealing with um, the Elastic Clause uh, being stretched, necessary and proper, the tie to the express powers. Uh, coining money, being the express written, and then creating a bank with, and, and then again, um, strict constructionist, making it so that implied powers had to be very specific to the expressed, and broad constructionist um, saying that, well, if we can just loosely tie it to the express power. Um, I, I was going to talk about impeachment, but I think we kind of covered it. But I, I definitely have one that, that deals with the process. So just I would recommend reviewing the chart that we do uh, with the questions dealing with impeachment. And, and you have to know, identify each U.S. president who has been impeached. So you're going to need three names there. Um, but the one that I do want to go over is redistricting. So it's, uh, the question is, redistricting or redrawing congressional districts have become a very controversial topic. Uh, so it's three parts. Why do we need to redraw congressional districts? I need you to tell me something about population. Uh, and, po and you have to mention the census. And tell me why that makes a difference uh, as far as uh, congressional districts. Uh, the second part is explain the process of gerrymandering. You're going to tell me about political parties and how they go about trying to draw those uh, districts. Uh, and then, uh, because districts are gerrymandered, what do some districts end up looking like? I actually mean, what do they look like when you look at a map? What have they ended up looking like? Um, so, you know, for example, you, we've had, um, you know, cartoons of some of them. Uh, one one uh, map of Ohio, uh, the old map that is going away, uh, Marcy Captors District is nicknamed the Mistake by the Lake. And so that, that's what I want you to do is, is kind of describe, because they're gerrymandered, because of why they're being gerrymandered, what do they end up physically looking like on a map? We good? I think we're good. I think the students quit listening 25 minutes ago, probably. Well, at 39, <laughs> we're almost at 40 minutes. It's a class time. It's a class period. Yeah. We're good. If I stop it now, but we could riff for a while. <laughs> I don't know how to riff. Do you riff, Mr. Gabler? No, I don't. We should have brought Berto in. Berto. Okay, I'm going to stop it.
Goodbye. Goodbye.